I was hanging out the towels. We were trying to save the world. I was picking up the house. Why don't you put it down? Come over. Come over. Hello, and welcome to Femidish, a podcast that seeks to explore the various intersections of food and feminism by sharing the stories of women from around the world and celebrating their unique ability to nourish themselves and one another. My name is Sandy, and I'm here tonight with my co-host, Hope. Hi, Hope. Hey. Our guest this evening is Catherine Viersema, a graduate of Fork Food Lab and owner of Chocolat Passion, a French chocolate shop here in Portland, Maine. Hi, Catherine. Hello, how are you? Doing really well. Thank you so much for being here. We're very excited to have you tonight. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. This episode is part of a special mini-series that we are doing featuring the makers of Fork Food Lab in Portland, Maine. It is a membership-based shared commercial kitchen and food business incubator. So, Catherine, uh, tell us, let's get right into it. Tell us about Chocolat Passion. Tell us what you do um, and, you know, um, how you got here. Tell us how you got from, you know, all the way from France to having a chocolate shop in Portland, Maine. Okay. Well, that's a long story, which started a long time ago. I was an exchange student uh, back in the early 70s and came over to the U.S. and ended up coming back to the U.S. It really seemed to be the right country for me. France at the time, the early 70s, was kind of a difficult environment for young women in the sense that I had no clue whatsoever what I would do uh, with myself. Uh, and so the, the U.S. was really a wonderful country to move to. And I found over the years that I was able to do many, many different things. Uh, and this one is the last uh, career, uh, I think I will have probably, um, I started the chocolate, uh, company about six years ago. Uh, I was in Massachusetts at the time living in Belmont and I opened a residential kitchen there, which is allowed in Massachusetts and started to make chocolates. Uh, I had been making chocolates my whole life. I started actually, I remember one of my earliest food making memories was making caramel uh, and uh, dumping it on hazelnuts and sending it to my brother who was at camp as a gift. And he must have broken his teeth on it. But uh, (laughs) that was my first foray into uh, what became really a lifelong love of anything related to caramel and chocolate and nuts. Uh, So uh, I continue to make chocolates throughout my life in the U.S. as an amateur, just several hundred truffles every Christmas for for friends, and eventually uh, became more serious about it. Wow, that is a really wonderful story from coming uh, to the United States, be able to open your business. Um, now you definitely talk about like loving, loving chocolates, but you have a pretty varied background when it comes to other jobs. Uh, how did you know that it was time to, to leave the quote unquote professional world and come into your own business making chocolate? 
Well, I think when you are growing up in France, you don't really think of yourself as having a career in confection. Uh, it's really a very different system. It's a very patriarchal system where you have uh, young um, uh, men joining uh, confectioners, joining pastry chefs, and working with them uh, from the age of 14 on. This was definitely not something I ever envisioned doing uh, and never came to mind. I wanted to be in a professional job. So when I first came to the U.S., I worked with, uh, I worked in a bank. And then when I moved to Boston, I worked for Fidelity for a number of years. Uh, then uh, became a professor after I had a child uh, to have a bit more freedom. I taught business uh, uh, topics, strategy and marketing to MBAs. Uh, at the Simmons Graduate School of Management, then became a landscape designer, went back to school, and uh, finally decided to basically make a big full loop and uh, start the chocolate business because I was becoming more and more involved in it. Now, you sound like a woman after my own heart with all your, your varied uh, interests and jobs, but Obviously, chocolate is kind of a passion, and I feel like people really thrive when they find their passion. So what are your chocolates like? Um, you know, what sets you apart? You obviously have quite a background in business and marketing, and so I know that's probably part of your success, but there must be something wonderful about your chocolates. Can you tell us about your your chocolates and what style they are? And Yes, so uh, I really very much... Uh, look to the way the French make confections as a guide, because this is what I learned. When I was a little kid, my mother taught all four of us, I was the oldest of four children, how to cook. And actually, one of us was responsible for Sunday lunch every week. Uh, my two brothers know how to cook extremely well, as well as my sister and me. And uh we always really enjoyed cooking. My mother is superb at pastry. She never did it professionally, but she is just magnificent in the kitchen and does such a beautiful job with birthday cakes and absolutely everything you can imagine. Uh, when I started to work with chocolate, my focus really was on recreating the French experience with taste. That is, you need bitterness in order to really enjoy. Things have to be complex. They have to develop in your mouth over a period of time. And you do need to see the nuances of what you've created. Uh, uh, so uh, to do that, you really want to combine things. Uh, for example, we combine passion fruit, which is very acidic, uh, make a passion fruit ganache with a vanilla ganache because the vanilla tames the passion fruit. Uh, we use a lot of organic candied citrus in our confections because citrus is magnificent combined with things that are sweeter. It balances it out. Uh, we uh, make caramel, and if you were to come in, when I'm making caramel, 
you would think the shop was about to go up in flames because there is so much smoke. Uh, we get that caramel up to 405 degrees, <laughs> which really to the average person would seem like totally burnt, but it's not. It's really right because it's going to give a complexity to that bite you are taking that is not existent if all you have is basically cooked sugar. Uh, so that's really the difference. And that's what the French do with their confections. They create that beautiful balance uh, between those elements. So a lot of our chocolates actually have more than one component so they can play off each other. And it's really fun to just create, you know, new experiences. I had no idea that there was so much complexity when it comes to French chocolate versus other kinds of chocolate or um, anything like that. And it's pretty drool worthy to hear you talk about those things of like the caramels and the citruses and the like the, the bitterness and the sweetness and all of that. Like I, I, I've seen your chocolates before. I've bought some in the past um, for friends as presents because they're just so pretty too. They're so beautifully decorated. You almost don't want to eat it, but then you're very glad that you did eat it. Yeah, you have to eat them. That's your mission in life is to be eaten. Uh, <laughs> but you do eat with your eyes. That is really another very important tenet originally of French cooking, but of course, many other cultures as well, where you really want to make things very appetizing and you want things to be very polished and to feel finished. Uh, and so we have paid a lot of attention to that. And I have one, my primary, I have two colleagues with whom I work. And one of them is a pastry chef who was a, an art major in college. And she is fantastic at painting, at doing the airbrushing of the chocolates. She has such a wonderful artistic sense. She's really the person she's taken, she's gotten way better than I am uh, at it. And she is a person we count on to really create these wonderful combinations of color uh, because it does make a difference. You really can appreciate it at many different levels that way. Your shop sounds like like something I'd, I just want to sit and kind of sip on a, a latte and, and watch what was happening. You talked about all the smoke billowing from the caramel making and, um, you know, an art major pastry chef doing airbrushing and um, all the beautiful color combinations that she's creating. And I just. Uh, no, what like you want to actually <laughs> have is a hot chocolate. Ooh, the hot chocolate. We make <laughs> hot chocolate. We make what is called chocolat chaud all winter. And it's made the real French way, which is not great for the waistline. We typically don't give too much information <laughs> about the ingredients because it's primarily cream, milk, and this and chocolate as callots. So it has all the cocoa butter in it, which oh, wow. is a completely different experience than drinking hot chocolate that's been made with cocoa powder. Because the cocoa powder is missing the really fun part, which is the uh, cocoa butter. 
and that makes all the difference. So we have a real following with our customers. And we even have customers coming in in June and saying, well, could I have some hot chocolate? <laughs> and I say, well, it's 80 degrees outside. <laughs> but, I, say, I couldn't uh, imagine hot chocolate this evening. It feels like it's been so uh, sticky and muggy here in Portland. Yeah, That's it's not the season for it. There's a season <laughs> for everything, so... Although that's how you know it's that's how you know it's good is if everyone's still coming in when it's eighty degrees they're like I don't care if I'm sweating I still need this chocolate drink exactly <laughs> now you mentioned that your um, hot chocolate is made with chocolate that still has some of the cocoa butter um, in it as opposed to what I think most people are familiar with which would be like a powdered cocoa powder um, yes could you tell us and our listeners just a little bit about chocolate and where you source chocolate. And I feel like you're kind of a wealth of information um, about chocolate itself, which does have so much more depth and complexity and um, just. Yes. Well, (laughs) chocolate is a very precious element. It's uh, chocolate is actually as a crop, a threatened crop because of climate change, uh, also deforestation a willful deforestation in uh, poor countries. Uh, And so it's really very important to be very deliberate on how you choose chocolate. Uh, About 75% of the world crop comes out of Africa. Uh, And two countries in Africa, Côte d'Ivoire, the Ivory Coast, and Ghana, represent more than half the world production of chocolate. So those countries have really a huge presence in the chocolate world. And uh, you may have heard of uh, things like the fair trade movement and so forth. There are a lot of of inequities uh, and income uh, inequality between the farmers who produce those precious crops and uh, the people who, like me, who sell that product to their customers. Uh, And in recent years, there's been almost a revolution in uh, how those countries have taken more of a lead in trying to ensure that their workers um, get more revenues, a fairer wage that represents more of a base wage, And also that things like uh, children who are 10 years old working with machete to clear new cocoa fields are actually in school. Uh, Those are terribly important issues. And it's really very important for people who listen to know that you as consumers can make choices about the products that you buy because there are tools out there of ratings of chocolate companies that tell you what grade they earn in terms of their uh, work with farmers, how fairly they compensate farmers, how good their growing practices are, because uh, there are ways of growing cocoa that is healthier for the crops, that's healthier for the workers. All those issues really come to the fore. So as a chocolate maker, I had to choose, to be very deliberate in choosing a, a chocolate from a company because I don't make the chocolate myself. I do not source 
beans. I am not what you call a bean to bar. I buy the chocolate ready to be used in our machines to create our final confections. So I have been working with Guitar, Etienne Guitar. It's a company out of California. It's probably one of the largest uh, family-owned chocolate companies. It's very small compared to a company like Nestle, for example, or Hershey, but it's still a very big player. And they are very involved in this whole fair trade movement, in working with their farmers. So that's really a very important decision. It's like, you know, if you are choosing to go to an organic farm here to pick berries or to uh, get organic citrus or whatever within the U.S., that's one thing. But as chocolate makers, you also have to be very deliberate and thoughtful in how you choose um, who supplies your chocolate because you want it to be responsibly sourced. You know, otherwise, it's not, it's not really appropriate. I shouldn't be in the business. And so... Sorry for jumping on my high horse. <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually, I think that's wonderful. I think um, so many people and, you know, being from the United States, I can really only speak for people in the U.S. Um, I, I can't say as much for people in other cultures as consumers, but I do think we're so far removed from our food and from food production that often um, the average consumer does overlook um, how their buying choices will impact the producers. And, and so in this case, we're talking about chocolate farmers in other countries um, and not chocolate farmers, co cocoa farmers and, you know, what their life looks like based on our choices here in the United States. So I think it's, it's great that you bring that up and that you're very intentional with where you source your products from to create your confections. Um, yeah, that, that's very important. And uh, there is actually something very important happening this fall is that in Ghana and Côte d'Ivoire, which represents such a huge part of the world market, there is what is called the living income differential, which is going into effect. And it's important for consumers to know because it's probably going to increase the price of chocolate quite a bit. Uh, but it's going to mean that those families are basically going to make roughly twice as much as they used to make. Uh, which uh, when you think about 80% of the world cacao being grown by very small farmers, we're talking about families of anywhere from eight to 10 people. Um, uh, the, they represent the great majority of the world production. And those in those countries, they have had the political muscle to basically make uh, all those chocolate, the people who belong to the fair trade movement agree to pay that fixed amount per ton of chocolate, of cacao. So it's a very momentous year. Uh, I hope things like the coronavirus are not going to affect it too much, even though right now in those countries that really seem, they seem to have a actually very low infection rate compared to the U.S. and very low death rate. Let's keep fingers crossed that that continues. That's really great that that is happening for those farmers. That's really wonderful. Um, there's so many other commodities that could really benefit from that when you think about these globally traded products. And some, like Hope was saying, some of the effects of, of you know purchasing decisions in other countries, how that can really negatively affect 
um, so many populations in other countries. So I agree with you that that's a very positive thing and we'll keep our fingers crossed that it, that it still goes forward for those and will really positively benefit those people. Uh, so let's uh, let's shift a little bit to you know a little how you got where you are now. Um, you were a member of Fork Food Lab, uh, which we have talked about in previous episodes on Femidish about the um, how Fork does help businesses that are starting out. Can you tell us a little bit about that relationship? What helped you, or what you know made you decide that Fork was going to be for you, and um, what was Fork able to do to help you with your business? Absolutely, because Fork was essential to where I am today. And I think it's really important for everyone in Portland who enjoys food to realize that you need a place like Fork because it's an incubator. This is where you get the little seedling businesses that are going to grow into a full force and are going to add to the creativity of the food scene. So when I was in Boston and I started my business back in 2014, I was doing it under the cottage food law, which was fine. But when uh, we decided to move to Portland back in 2017, I did not have the size kitchen (laughs) to do chocolate production. I think my husband was pretty sick of it. of having mold stacked, you know, sky high <laughs> all the time and having to basically make your way through our space with all this production going. So I wanted to join a commercial kitchen, but there are actually very, very few of those and certainly none that are set up the way Fork is set up. So I was very excited when I contemplated the move I visited Fork, uh, chatted with them. At that time, they'd been in place for about nine months or so uh, and uh, figured out that that would be the perfect place for me to get going. And when I moved uh, to, when we moved to Portland in the fall of 17, I then moved my chocolate machines um, to Fork uh, and paid them actually rent for the space they took. But I was able to really produce for the six months I was a member all my chocolate. Uh, at the time, I was still doing markets in the Boston area. Uh, I was uh, my business was online only at the time. I did not have a shop, and it was so essential to have access to those resources. I, I think it's. Uh, very difficult for people who have not started a food business to realize how daunting it is to try to take on everything. It would be like drinking from a fire hose. And what Fork does is it really gives you the structure within which you can function and you have access to the uh, professional equipment. I had my own equipment but also made use of their equipment, which made my work so much more efficient. It made me much more disciplined because I really needed to make a whole batch, starting in the morning with the color, the casting, making the ganache, filling it, closing it, packaging it, and then putting all my stuff away. Uh, So it was such an essential a uh, beneficiary step, beneficial step for me to have that place as a halfway point. Uh, and then it made just basically getting, starting the business so, so much easier. 
uh, because I understood so much more about professional food production. Because you see other people who have different businesses from yours. I was the only chocolate business uh, there. But you learned a lot. And, you know, there is an exchange of ideas. The people there are really wonderful. So I can't speak highly enough about it. And I will say to Portlanders, if you want to support a really good cause, you should definitely write a check to Fork because I know that they are considering right now changing, moving to a different space, which I think is necessary. Uh, I realized for my own business that because they didn't have air conditioning, I would not have been able to make chocolates there in the summer because you cannot temper chocolates in a humid and warm environment. You have to have uh, cool air uh, and cool temperatures. Uh, so I know that they are in the throes of trying to figure out a new home for themselves and they are going to need financial support. So that's my pitch to everyone is if you want to see Portland remain as this vibrant food place, particularly considering the difficulties because of coronavirus, I think it's essential to think about those little seedlings, uh, you know, that incubator where you have all those future food businesses that are going to do great things for this city. It's a really wonderful, um, I don't want to say plug because that like diminishes it a little bit, but, you know, a really wonderful just call to action for people um, about Fork. We are doing this series right now because we also believe that it's, you know, it's a great business for them and it's a, you know, it's a great service organization, but it really does do so much, uh, you know, contribute to many parts of Portland's food system. Um, and this is something that we value is having really as good, small, thriving local businesses. Usually those are the ones that are able, that are purchasing from other local businesses. They're, they're keeping all of those, those really unique and interesting um, stores and shops and products that we all love and what makes Portland pretty special. And um, a lot of that has been uh, able to happen because of Fork. So um, yeah, it's definitely, it's a, it's a great program that has been able to sustain so many businesses. Yes. And actually, if I may add to it, uh, because I know many people are still not going to restaurants, they may be ordering meals from restaurants. You can also order wonderful food from Fork. Uh, they have a great website. You can pick it up right there on Paris Street on a very regular schedule. Uh, and they have a number of the kitchens which operate out of Fork that make their battery, uh, their um, uh, goods available. Uh, so that's really very important. That's great. Yes, exactly. They have the, the new online market or you know, relatively new online market and definitely everything's happening online right now too. So it's, uh, that's really, that's a great resource where you can try all different kinds of things. So Fort clearly has many, you know, things that were really able to help you, but you are a graduate of Fork. So that means that you, you know, congratulations, you are now a graduate um, what does that mean? And how did you know that it was you were able, you were ready, the time was right to leave Fork and go have your own brick and mortar store? Well, there was a little scary moment in Fork's life when the uh, owners of Fork, who were New York based, uh, started to shut down their entire operation. 
And everybody was kind of in a panic trying to figure out where am I going to produce food? Uh, we were lucky at Fork because we were actually given about a three months notice this was going to happen when they finally did shut down. Uh, the New York people only had like a two hour notice, no notice at all, which was really terrible. All those food makers were shut out of the building uh, altogether. So a lot of people at that point started to ask themselves, well, what else should I do? And I realized that it was really time for me to move to a different business model uh, that up to now, at that point, I had been doing uh, the online sales, but chocolate is not the most obvious things to sell online. I did also some markets, but of course, because chocolate melts, you can't sell it in summer when most markets are. Uh, so uh, the opportunity presented itself to uh, get into a location at 189 Brackett Street and to open a shop. And it's just a wonderful little space, 550 square feet. So we make all our stuff there uh, and we also sell it out of the shop. And fortunately enough, uh, we have actually two work areas as little wings uh, around our core retail area which right now is allowing two of us to work in a, a socially distanced way, which is incredibly useful. Um, there are three of us working, but uh, only two of us work at any one time. What has that been like? So you, it's two other women that you're working with um, yeah. and, you know, and you being a woman business owner, um, what has that been like working with two other women? Is that something that has been typical for you throughout your career of being in a woman-owned space like that or a woman-run woman space? Have there been challenges or you know anything um, beneficial from being a woman-owned business? Anything you can talk about about that experience? Oh, you know, when I was in the uh, uh, corporate world a long time ago, um, I uh, did... I was in a totally male-dominated environment. I worked for Fidelity for a number of years, and it was, I had a very good boss, uh, but it was kind of a difficult environment. I was one of their more senior women, uh, and so I knew what it was like to work in a sometime difficult environment, uh, and I always very much identified <laughs> with the need to build coalitions and to work with other women. So uh, it was not really deliberate. It was really serendipity that put me in contact with the, uh, the first person I've been working with, who is uh, Darcy Brennanpour. She is a pastry chef uh, who um, uh, has... A, fabulous background. She was a pastry chef at Lord Giant, uh, and uh, we met when she was quite pregnant, and she worked with me actually at a fork for several months before she had a baby, and then we resumed working together in the shop in September when we opened two years ago, uh, 
And it's been just a marvelous collaboration. I cannot think of, uh, it's just really remarkable to work with people, with someone like this who is super talented and has so much to bring and can just run with things. And more recently, we hired a young woman uh, who is a fairly recent graduate of the CIA, not the spy agency, the other one, oh. <laughs> <laughs> for the Culinary Institute of America. Oh, gosh, um, yeah, very different. <laughs> yes, very different. Uh, we hired her two weeks before the shutdown. So it was interesting, but she's proven to be just remarkable in her ability to adapt and her talents are smart. Um, and she's already created her very own first confection, which has been received with great applause by our customers. It's a bar that has uh, chipotle in it and uh, mm. candied um, pecans. It's absolutely delicious. So you should come in and have a taste of it. But Definitely. working with those women is so incredibly easy. I, I, I just, we have a lot of, uh, we work independently. I don't believe in overmanaging people or micromanaging. I think people should have the space to, you know, spread their wings and create on their own. And it's just been absolutely fantastic. That's really, that's really great to hear. And we're talking this week with uh, other uh, women makers from Fork. And um, that's been, you know, a really positive thing for their businesses too, is the people they are surrounding themselves with um, are also, you know, their other women or family members or, you know, people that just, it makes it so much better of a work environment, you know, when it's people that are collaborative and like you said, ability to you know, be creative and, and branch out a little bit on your own and have a supportive environment too. Um, and maybe those things are uniquely female um, or, you know, more likely to be a female environment. That's something that we try, we're trying to figure out here on this podcast is, you know, are, what are these intersections and what is, is there anything innate about any of these values? So that's really I cool think thing. it could be because it's, it's interesting. I go periodically uh, to Montreal to train with very well-known chocolatiers. And I've had some remarkable experiences with some of the very best uh, chocolatiers in the world, and including one, Ramon Morato, who is one of the most generous people I've ever met, uh, just incredible at teaching, an amazing teacher and everything. That said, invariably, I was one of a number of few females in this group of more men who really kind of grew up in this sort of chef environment, many of them in France uh, and a number of them in uh, French Canada in Montreal. And it's very interesting in what ways I could feel my hackles go up as uh, someone would advise me in a very nice tone, like patting me on the back. Well, you know, you should really use this big paddle. It's going to work much better for you because I'm using a little paddle because I've had two shoulder surgeries <laughs> and <laughs> I want to use tools that work for me. But this sort of assumption on the part of some of these guys that in order to really do it right, you have to do it within the narrow confines of how the profession has you know, defined itself, which is really rather autocratic. 
uh, kitchen environments in France are still very top-down. We are not talking about very flat, uh, you know, structures where people have a lot of freedom. It's it's a very... um, uh, narrowly defined in a lot of ways. I don't want to overgeneralize. I think there would be many exceptions to that. But I've observed that. And to be back in those settings just for three-day training really reminds me when I leave, oh my God, it's so great to be working with those women and for us to not have to deal with some of this uh, you know, some of those issues or adding these layers that really don't contribute anything positive. Uh, it's, uh, it's important to just keep it simple and, you know, to trust people and know that they are going to learn. And to become a chocolatier actually takes quite a bit of time. It's technically not the easiest of jobs, um, but uh, you know, you have to make mistakes in order to progress. You have to learn because chocolate is different every day you work with it. It's going to react to the air conditioning. It's going to react to the sun that's coming in from the window. There are so many factors and you have to really pay attention to it. And so for someone who is new to that, there is a real learning curve, but you have to let them pick it up on their own. You cannot do it for them. Yeah, we've we've actually heard that a couple of times um, from other women chefs about sometimes the kitchen environment and like you said, this you know maybe uh, uh, like autocratic or you know it's the way that we've always done it and this is just how it is and um, they, you know some sort of mindset like that. Whereas maybe being in female-run businesses, there is a little bit more support for trying something different or being creative and maybe more support also for making some mistakes that come along with that. You know, if you try something new, it's not going to be the most perfect combination the first time, but um, there's that space to try and make a mistake and that's a supported and uh, encouraged environment. Oh yeah. When we make new chocolates, I will tell you that failure is really high. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and if you were to expect otherwise, you're not going to end up with your best. You have to really be willing to do things. I remember the most difficult chocolate we make is Bananas Foster. And um, that's a chocolate I'm so proud of because it was so difficult to conquer. And it was so beyond horrible when I first started it. Um, and now it's really become one of my absolute favorite tastes because it is like the dessert in one little piece of chocolate. And But if I had not allowed myself, if I don't allow Sarah or Darcy to make mistakes in the same way, we are never going to get there. We won't get to the truly excellent because then fear will hold you back and you're afraid of being judged. And that's there is no time for that. It doesn't make any sense to operate that way. You have to really give people time to, to kind of grow with it. I think that's, that's wonderful. Like so many, so many times systems are set in place and systems can be great for getting like very basic things done efficiently. Um, but they can also be suffocating as far as just like keeping people from being creative and discovering maybe better in new processes or better in new chocolate recipes. <laughs> Absolutely. 
<laughs> and so I, I love that um, willingness to kind of, you know, try something new and fail and maybe fail terribly and still kind of go back to that and try again until you have this really wonderful, enjoyable um, little chocolate morsel in your case. <laughs> exactly. You just have to do one thing, <laughs> which is to make sure that when you try things, you do really tiny batches <clears throat> because a few years ago, I decided I was doing my passion fruit vanilla chocolate and I decided to really up the passion fruit. And of course, always confident, sometimes right. I ended up making <laughs> 600 of those things and I had to throw them all out oh, because oh. I forgot that passion fruit, first of all, is incredibly acidic. I was reducing the amount of white chocolate and I forgot that white chocolate is actually like over 60% sugar. And it was so mouth packeringly horrible. Oh, I no. had to throw out 600 of them. Oh, so no. oh, we have learned. And when we do our testing, we do it on a really tiny scale. So we don't mind at all throwing it all in the trash. Oh my gosh, 600. That just must have been so painful. You know, you like painstakingly you put so much time and effort into each little morsel and the designs and the art and everything and so I feel like it's yeah. like 600 of my little mini creations you have to go away I know but you know what I've never made the same mistake another time <laughs> so that's that what you learn from such a horrible experience <laughs> that is true wisdom right there never you know make the same mistake twice that's that's great now Catherine I'm loving your whole story from you know your first real memory of making confections is, you know, making a caramel treat that you question how enjoyable it may have been, but you're sending it off to your brother at camp as, as quite a young person and, you know, cooking with your mother in the kitchen and your life really coming full circle, having multiple career trajectories that had nothing to do with kitchens or cooking or food at all. Um, and finding yourself back working with chocolate and confections and, what do you see next? Because you did say that you think that maybe this is your last career for you. What is your, um, you know, what, what's your dream, your vision for your chocolate passion? And, um, you know, everything's changed because of COVID. How is that affected? How do you hope that you can bounce back from that or keep going from that? Um, what's next? Yeah, so COVID-wise, we have been very, very lucky. Uh, and uh, I think that's in great part because we have wonderful customers who made it a point of supporting us. Uh, the shutdown happened right between, right before Easter and when past Mother's Day. So we had two of our big chocolate holidays during that span of time. But our customers just ordered and ordered and ordered online and really saved us. Uh, so we were very, very fortunate, and we were able to resume uh, June 3rd, uh, reopening the shop. Uh, the shop is tiny anyway, so we can only have one social unit or one person at a time, but that's not really an issue. Um, so we've been very fortunate. It's not really stopped us. Uh, if anything, we've had more time to create new things. We've been just cooking up a storm, making caramels, lots of different caramels, making a very old-fashioned French confection called pâte de fruits, which are fruit jellies, but they are not like gummy bears. They are just much softer, really delicious, kind of the essence of fruit. 
Um, so we've been doing that. But in terms of the longer term, I do think I'd like to do this for a few more years and then have uh, my younger <laughs> colleagues take over, probably. Um, I don't really have an ambition at all of making this a bigger business. Uh, that to me is not what excites me. I'm much more excited by really continuing to build this community. Um, the shop has become a place where we have a lot of regulars and, and that because we are in the West end, um, there are a lot of people who live in the neighborhood, who walk by the shop, and they've really become devoted to us and we're devoted to them. And that building of community has been much more important to me. I don't have any visions of making the business a huge entity. We don't do any wholesale. I have zero interest in doing that. Um, we basically, everything we make, we sell out of the shop or online. Um, and I think um, if I were a lot, lot younger, I might think of it differently. I think my successors will have the opportunity to define, you know, their vision, their dream of what they want to do with the company. Uh, but for me, I'm just so happy to be there, to work with these wonderful women and to have just these remarkable customers. You know, no one has... Uh, been difficult about the mask mandate, for example, at all. Uh, everyone is so considerate and kind. And uh, I don't want to sound like Pollyanna, but I do believe we are creating this little environment, which is important to people, because when I ask our customers after we reopened how their experience during the shutdown was, the real leitmotif was how lonely people felt, how alone. People living by themselves really had a very hard time. And I think for them to be able to reconnect to businesses that they really enjoy, where they are known, is really terribly important. We are a little piece of the community. Um, and so continuing that, it's not a big ambition, but that's really what, where I'd rather spend my time, that and making new things. <laughs> Those would be the two things, I think. <laughs> I feel like you're touching on all my favorite aspects of food and the food industry. And that's just, you know, building community and nourishing each other and um, that kind of camaraderie you feel like when you become like a regular at a place or when you have regulars and and also the creativity. And it sounds like um, you have all of that there in your little shop on the West End in, in Portland, Maine. And that's just it sounds like a wonderful thing that I hope I can experience myself um, someday soon. I'll Please do. With <laughs> my children and they will be thrilled to pick out very fancy. Oh, stuff. yeah. We have lots of fun things for kids. We have unicorns and dinosaurs. <laughs> Oh man, you're gonna break oh, wow. the book, I swear. <laughs> and we make baby dragons for Halloween. I'll just dump oh, all my, my cash out on the, the, the Yeah. The Take it all. Take, Take all my money. My boys won't let me out of there without it all. <laughs> so Catherine, I know you're saying that you love your small business and that most of your business is done right there from your shop. And you do have a little bit of online um business. 
how can our listeners support you, um, especially maybe some listeners who are not local to Portland? And where can they find out more about you and about Chocolate Passion um, online? Are you on Instagram, Facebook? Do you have a website? Yeah, we are on Instagram. It's Chocolat. So it's like the French version, T-S, no E. And then the word passion, chocolatpassion.com. And they will find us. And uh, we do a, actually a fair amount of mail order, much more than we did Uh, right after we opened the shop, we actually did very little mail order. Uh, but right now we are still doing it for customers who are concerned about, you know, stepping out. Uh, and uh, so, and we ship all over the country. And right now we obviously ship with ice packs. Uh, there are a dozen states we don't ship to because they are simply too hot right now, but we do ship to them come October again but they can go online and they should definitely visit us if uh, uh, they want to. We are open Wednesdays through Sunday, 1 p.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, we are open late because we do our production there, so we need to have time to make things. Uh, so it's very simple, and we welcome people. We always have samples. And right Ooh. now, because we do so many different things, people get a caramel sample and a pâte de fruit sample, and a chocolate sample. <laughs> We've been accused of ruining their appetites. <laughs> I'll have to make sure my children have had dinner before we come into your shop. <laughs> that's a good idea. <laughs> First. Um, no, that's just wonderful. And I, you know, logistically, I never really thought about that shipping chocolate. They're very problematic with the heat. I mean, here we are, uh, the three of us on the on this podcast this evening we all live here in portland maine and i feel like i'm melting and as a matter of fact i opened a lollipop for my children earlier and it is just so hot here in maine that the lollipop had melted inside its wrapper. oh wow yeah. oh gosh so you know yeah, well we I use ice packs or anything but i can only imagine what happens to chocolate if you're trying to send it down to texas or florida right now. yeah uh, we've had just a couple of bad instances where a poor customer sent her mother some chocolates for Mother's Day and it was delivered to the wrong box and they spent all day in the Arizona sun. Oh, uh, and she sent me a picture and I could have cried. It looked like chocolate soup. Oh, chocolate. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so in spite of the ice packs, in spite of the uh, liner we use to insulate the box, There's just no way, you know, but we do, uh, we do a good job shipping and it's, uh, it's not a problem at all. <laughs> so. That's great. That's great. Good. So it's not limited just to Maine folks. So you can still get some of this amazing chocolate outside of New England too. And I do hope um, many of our listeners will log on, whether it's immediately or if they'll wait for the temperatures to, you know, be a more agreeable level for chocolate shipment. Um, but I do hope they purchase some of your chocolate because your story is amazing and I love what you're doing and the sense of community and artistry um, that you're you know, conveying through your, your branding and your company and each individual little chocolate. Um, so again, for all of our listeners out there, this has been another episode of our special mini series featuring makers from the Fork Food Lab located here in Portland, Maine. If you want to find out more about us, you can find us at femidish.com. That's www.
Femidish, F-E-M-I-D-I-S-H.com. And we're also on Instagram and Facebook as Femidish. So thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. And as always, thank you, Sandy, my co-host this evening. Good night, everyone. Thanks for listening. And thank you, Catherine from Chocolat Passion. You are so welcome. Thank you so much. This was fun. Yes, it was. Until next time. We were trying to save the world I was picking up the house Why don't you put it down? Come over Come over